Good morning and welcome to Wanda Six, the Black Arts and Cultural Program of African Sisters Media Network. And we are so excited to have in the studio uh, Dr. Ann C. Bailey to talk about her book, The Weeping Time, Memory and the Largest Slave Auction in American History. Good morning. How are you? Um, I'm fine. Thank you very much. Nice to be here, Wanda. Oh, yes, really. I'm so happy to be speaking to you about ah, about this time, which is so mm-hmm. sad. Um, yet, um, you know, there are moments of, of joy in here for our ancestors until everything unravels, right? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, and the country becomes, you know, polarized again in favor of, you know, the white folks and not the black folks. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to um, read your bio to our audience, and then um, I was wondering if we could maybe start with uh, your contributions to, um, you know, the wonderful scholarship around, you know, 1619, 2019, mm-hmm. the 400 years of African-American history. Sure. And, uh, you know, the uh, the New York New York Times, uh, really wonderful um, scholarship around that. It's really, really awesome. So, uh Dr. Bailey, um, again, uh, author of The Weeping Time, Memory and the Largest Slave Auction in American History, is a historian, obviously, (laughs) and a professor of history and Africana studies at SUNY um, Binghamton, State University of New York. In her works of nonfiction, she combines elements of travel, adventure, history, and an understanding of contemporary issues with an accessible style. I definitely agree with that. She is a U.S. citizen who grew up in Jamaica, um, West Indies, and in Brooklyn, New York. Wow. How Mm -hmm. interesting. Yes, New York. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) Wow. Um, Dr. Bailey is committed to a concept of living history in which events of the past are connected to current and contemporary issues. She is also concerned with the reconciliation of communities after age-old conflicts like slavery, war, and genocide. Her nonfiction book, African Voices of the Atlantic Slave Trade, Beyond the Silence and the Shame, as Beacon Press, and her current work, we already mentioned, The Weeping Time, um, which is was just published by Cambridge University Press uh, 2017, reflect that commitment. So again, welcome. Again, I'm I'm looking forward to talking with you, and you know, I I I want to encourage. I know you mentioned uh, the 1619 project. Um, in a just in addition to my own work, the weeping time, I definitely want to encourage your audience to uh, seek a copy, which you can find online, of the 1619 project and how it looks at the 400th anniversary of African presence in the U.S and the legacy of slavery, Jim Crow, and the rest, uh, you know, that we are still contending with today. So the Weeping Time fits into that, I think, quite well. And I think your audience will be really interested to know some of these issues, some of which they may think they know a little bit about, and, and they do. And I think it expands their knowledge of what they know of their own history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. 
So tell us about, you know, this, the largest slave auction in American history. Well, it takes place in um, 1859, and, um, you know, this is just a few years before the Civil War starts. But that's not, you know, as far as these enslaved persons are concerned, you know, that's neither here nor there because they have been enslaved on the Butler Plantation estates. Um, you know, that, you know, for literally that plantation has been in existence for hundreds of years. And so all they know, if you look at it from their perspective, is that they're to be split up as a community, as families, because Miss Pierce Butler is in debt. And, you know, what is, one of the things that you did during that time, Wanda, is that when you had debt, um, any kind of debt to pay, you could look at your property, and if you considered these people your property that you did, you could sell them, you know, to pay off your debts and enrich yourself further, and that's exactly what he did. So 1859, the Tuesday sale, 429-plus people of African descent are sold all across this country, and they had had pretty subtle lives on, you know, on this plantation. And you might say, well, it was, they were slaves, it was burdensome, it was difficult life, of course, but they were still a community, and uh, families were together. So this is a pretty momentous thing, and the fact that it was the largest slave auction was, you know, it just kind of added to the drama of it all. And needless to say, that's why the slaves called this two-day period the weeping time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, it's really, um, like, for instance, you know, the way you, you start, um, you know, sort of, the thinking around commodifying people, mm-hmm. you know, no matter the legal, you know, sort of three-fifths human, these right. these people knew that these are human beings that we are, you know, commodifying, we are making into to property, mm-hmm. yet they had to, like, bracket that. <laughs> because right. if, they, if they didn't, they wouldn't be able to run their their industries, you know, the plantations, Absolutely. and like Absolutely. you say, you know, liquefy their possessions if they were if they needed money. Absolutely. In fact, there's a great deal of denial that takes place mm-hmm. during much of this period, and you know, we have to look at it as a part of a larger period because the Atlantic slave trade went on for. 350 years (laughs) you know our experience with slavery here in the U.S. is for about 250 years of that and so during this whole period though you know you had to deny the humanity of of another you know you had to Mm -hmm. if you were going to persist in making money and in you know building as you say building industries um, and really it's really the roots of modern day society um, are based on, you know, the slave trade and slavery. I mean, the the modern wealth that we enjoy now is because of that extra advantage that any industry would have if you didn't have to pay your employees. <laughs> you know, um, for hundreds of years, you have a quite a, a, you know, you kind of have an advance over any kind of competition. First of all, um, and it's no wonder that, um, you know, modern-day Europe, 
modern-day America enjoys such wealth. Um, this is the roots of it. It starts in slavery, and then it builds to the Industrial Revolution, which is basically using slave byproducts, whether it's cotton or rice or whatever, and then, you know, you know, you know, sending that into a factory. And then from there, that's where you really start the engine going to modern-day Europe and America. But it starts with slavery. It absolutely starts with their labor and, um, you know, what they produce, cotton, tobacco, rice, sugar, you know. This is, this is kind of the foundation of what we're standing on. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Literally what we're standing on. And, uh, you know, a lot of people feel that, you know, why would you want to write a book about this? <laughs> um, like, like you know, like, why can't we be over okay, this, guess, yeah. you know, this conversation? Yeah. We think of this, like, ah. Sure, sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, and it's a, it is a really good question, Wanda, because, and I don't think it's, I don't mind when people ask me, to be honest with you, or if they have a, even if they have a contrary feeling, like, oh, that was so long ago, what does that have to do with us now? Um, because very often it's because they don't realize that the, the devil is in the details, you know. They don't realize that, you know, slavery was not just a blip, that it was a very long part of our American history in this particular case, and that it was really formative. Um, so it's, it's on one end, it's econo- it, it, forms the, it helps to form the economic foundation, right, of our society. But on the mm-hmm. personal human end, you know, which is really why I wanted to tell the story was the human part, um, you know, what does it mean? you were to be split from your dearest loved ones right now as I'm speaking and you think of people that you love dearly in your family or people who you think of like family and if you were to be separated from them with no idea of when or if you'd ever see them again think of that happening you know thousands of times across this country because there were 1.2 million slave sales thereabouts is what we're estimating. This is just one, <laughs> one mm-hmm. auction of thousands of other auctions. Um, and think of the impact just with this one auction, you know, mm-hmm. of what that meant for those families. And some of the stories I tell in the book, as you know, there are couples who are split apart, you know, one particular couple that was engaged to be married and, you know, yeah. this was, their opportunity to be together. They're young, in their 20s, but because they weren't married, um, they were sent in different directions. And, you know, you know, and I just have to imagine, this is what I thought about, when you, what you need to do sometimes, I think, is put yourself in these positions of the people, of these historical characters, and you imagine, what would you do if you had been, you know, kind of disconnected from the people that you love, um, the very first opportunity you get, you would try to find them, right? And mm-hmm. so so this is a story about the weeping time and the auction and what, how they get split apart. It's also a story about how people go finding and looking for one another after the Civil War and after they're emancipated in 1863. And I love that part of the story because, again, it's such a human part of the story, of course, you would. That's the first thing you would preoccupy yourself with, right? That's the first mm-hmm. thing you would do is to find, on foot, as they often did, 
you know, try to find anyway your loved ones. Um, you'd put ads in the paper, which they did as well, in black newspapers. You'd go to, you know, black churches, which they also did, um, and, you know, declare that you were looking for your mother or your brother or your sister or this woman in this case that you were engaged to be married to and so forth. So this is also part of the story and uh, perhaps the hopeful part too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You, um, you sort of said out um, early on in the book, you sort of talk about um, how you're going to be um, telling this story, um, you know, of the auction, it's prehistory and legacy underscores mm-hmm. four key themes you write um, in American history and the history of the African diaspora. And I'm on page 21. Slave labor, emancipation from slavery, the reconciliation of lives and loved ones in the era of Reconstruction, and historical and contemporary notions of the black family. And mm-hmm. well, you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, sort of the black family um, then and now, and and some of the, um, I guess, uh, um, some of the things that linger. Um, okay. In in our communities, because of what mm-hmm. um, our you know our, we experience uh, through our lineage around around family, around belonging, yeah. around sure. safety. Sure. Well, you know, so many things, and some of what I tried to do in the book is to lay out some of that, and then in the last chapter. Mm-hmm really talk about just what you're saying, like what are the implications for us now? Um, First I should say, and I always say this, is that I don't ever draw a straight line, you know, historically between what happened back then to now. You know, in fact, when my students will say, oh, that's why this is going on now, and I say, wait a minute, (laughs) you know, because there's a lot that's happened in between and a lot of good things too. So I don't Mm -hmm. want to draw a straight line because, you know, a generation is 20 to 30 years, and there's a lot of generations between the end of slavery and now, and um, you can't draw a straight line. That said, there's some patterns, right? There's some patterns mm-hmm. that we see that are still um, a part of, you know, some of the challenges that the, the black family faces. So let me first speak of what I think is super positive. First of all, you know, and that's the key reason that I was drawn to this story um, mm-hmm. black families are incredibly resilient. I mean, it's just, it's like a fact. It's like a fact along with the fact that the sky is blue. I mean, it is what it is, you know. I mean, maybe forged out of this incredibly difficult history um, has come what I call this gift of resilience. And that's what I meant when I said that these families that were split apart, their first preoccupation, not only in this case with the weeping time, but in thousands of cases across the country is when that war, civil war was over, they went looking for each other. They care about family. They cared about family then and they care about family now. I mean, it's just, that's an incredible strength, I think, that is not often very well represented in the media, not very well represented in books and so forth. Um, But yet, I think we have the evidence in this particular story, and I think you see those patterns throughout history, um, that there is a great desire to stick together. When I looked at, say, for example, the census records, 
during the Reconstruction period after the Civil War, okay? So I'm looking mm-hmm. at these census records, you know, going all the way through the 20th century. And these families made an effort to stay close by to one another. So you see them living near each other's homes, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so once they found each other, they were like, we are staying close. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is to me, that's really terrifically poignant when you think of all the other pressures that were on these families. And we know the KKK and the terror of lynching and this and that. But yet there's still this Jim Crow there's still this huge effort to stay together, to work together, to make it work somehow. Now, that said, challenges. Challenges are still there. I mean, I don't think you, you can't, I don't think you can get out of a history like this totally unscathed. Um, and I think, you know, this is, this is for, you know, those who are psychologists and sociologists and historians and the general public to really think about um, the pressures, the external pressures on the black family have been huge. And we've not always been able to make our own decisions about what's best for our family, okay? Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, that's something that you're always, you have these internal and external pressures. And I think we're still dealing with that. And I, I think there's no question about that. And the great migration, which ends up with all these people coming from the South and and basically being relegated to, you know, certain parts of the city um, with no services, few jobs, and this and that. I mean, we're still reeling from some of that, and those are the external pressures on these families. But I think that no matter what we go through, I think it's really important to really be encouraged by the fact that there is this resilience and not to focus on all the bad statistics, if that makes sense, Um, Mm -hmm. not to focus on the fact that, we are struggling with issues in education. We are struggling with parenting issues and and the absence sometimes of both parents, of one or the other parent and so forth. We are struggling with the foster care system. I mean, there's lots of things that are struggles. But I think if you approach it from the standpoint of, look, there's nothing more difficult or challenging than you know, coming out of slavery and looking for your loved ones. <laughs> there's just nothing. Nothing compares. You know, and yet that was a period that, you know, um, black families um, surmounted. I do think that that attitude can help us get through some of the challenges of today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about some of these um, uh, African uh, ancestors that that you um, that you um, met <laughs> in 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 your in your work and. And tell us how, how does one how does one write a book like this? How does you know, how do you stand in the place where you know the largest auction in American history took place? Like, I mean, of course you're a historian, so you would know about these things. But I'm just wondering, just sort of like just sort of like in your body, <laughs> you know, yeah, sort of like yeah, 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 and and to live with with all of this this sorrow. That's a lot of people, yeah. um, and and you have names like you name people, so that's really great yeah. too. And and you know, and just wanted you could talk a little bit about about that process. Well, I think, and maybe for those who are trying to get closer to know more about the history, especially as we're approaching Black History Month, and there's going to be a lot more discussion about that. But I hope it's every day, every month, and we're just coming on the heels of Martin Luther King Day. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to tell you that there is sorrow, but 
I think I come back up to this issue of resilience, and it it just there's a great power in it, and I'm, that's one of the reasons why I really encourage you know people to to learn about this and to embrace it and to learn more. And I'm still learning more. It's not like a you know I'm a historian and I do this, but honestly, there's so much to know, Wanda. <laughs> you know, you never just. You know, no one knows at all, you know, so there's so much. And as much as you think you've learned, there's so much more that you're going to learn. And for me, a deep dive into this history has been very personally rewarding. Um, we all, especially people of, of African descent, obviously still, still face serious challenges, you know, institutionalized racism, prejudice in certain quarters and so forth. But what this history has done for me it's given me this incredible sense of what's possible. Um, you, you just, it's, it's a completely open, it completely puts in perspective every problem and challenge that you have in the modern day, essentially. And I literally think of people like Sally Hemings and Mary Prince, and I could just name the people on, my, on the auction block in this particular auction. Um, I could just mention all their different names. Um, mm-hmm. Cooper London, I could, you know, the, the couples that were split up, found mm-hmm. each other the ones who didn't. I just think of these people and in a very real way. And I think um, I have a sense that if they could do it, then I think I can too. Um, if they could, you know, face the circumstances that they faced with, with such courage, I think, it, it really emboldens me in my lowest point. So that's that's, I, that's my flip side of how I look at this type of history. And I, I also look at it from a place of faith. Um, many of these people were people of faith, and so um, they, you know, they didn't lose hope. You know, and, and let's just look around us. <laughs> There's a lot of people losing hope, no matter what color they are, these days, mm-hmm. because of the circumstances in the world and our country. And um, they had no reason to hope, but because of their strong faith, in some cases a very strong Christian faith, um, they they rose above their their very very dire circumstances. And I'm convinced. And the record shows that this was one of the ways that they surpassed, you know, these really difficult times. Um, so that's how I do it, um, is thinking about them in very real ways and thinking about the challenges they faced and the way they faced them. Um, and it, it, it gives me a lot of hope. It really doesn't make me sorrowful. But it's, it's the actual opposite, if you know, if you mm-hmm. can imagine, of what you would mm-hmm. think on the outside. Um is that it, it can, if you let it, give you a lot of hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a few things that I I put little tabs on. This is just, it's it's like deceptively slim volume. <laughs> I mean, it's not Say super again? long. It's, yeah. I mean, you know, what is it, 177? No, that's not, that's, that's the notes. Um yeah, 174 pages, 175, you know, the top of the page. But it's just so dense, yet such a good read. It's just really, really well written. I'm really looking forward to reading your other books, um, The uh, African Voices of the Atlantic Slave mm-hmm. Trade, Beyond the Silence mm-hmm. and the Shame. So. Mm-hmm. In that particular book, are we actually hearing from Africans in the journey here? 
and in those that remembered Africa here and in other places in the diaspora? Well, in that particular book, we're hearing more. Those voices are the voices of the continent, and those mm. are the ones, you know, we want to say left behind. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know? okay. Yeah, good for okay, them. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, they, they, they struggle, too. That's the thing. But they oh, yeah, not, of course. But yeah, still, they know. lose home and language <laughs> and know, customs. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Middle Passage did not have to endure the awful Middle Passage journey and, mm-hmm. and the trauma of all that. Um, right. So people that I talk to um, are really, uh, you know, these are kind of like the guardians of their family history, right? So, you mm-hmm. know, many, especially over there, but even here too, you have somebody who kind of keeps the history and um, knows the names and knows the ancestors and this kind of thing. So I spoke to these people in these villages in southern Ghana. Mm. Um, nice. It's an area called the Old Slave Coast. So that just tells you right oh. there, right? Okay. okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, you know, a lot of slave traffic was going on there. And I, I talked to a lot of the people whose families had lost somebody. So, mm. you know, somebody who then got sold, you know, could be one of us on this side mm-hmm. or in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Um, again, they don't know where to. So that's why sometimes in the book I talk about what I, you know, it's like but in many ways it's been a series of weeping times, right? Because mm-hmm. you've, been, you've been losing people, losing. There's a lot of loss. There's a lot of loss. Um, and so it, it starts there. And what's interesting is that there's not just loss in terms of the people that get sold away, but there's loss of memory. So you know, slave trade goes on for such a long time, but yet I found it very difficult to find, at that time, stories that were still remembered about, you know, about the buying and selling of people and who got lost from their families. Because it's almost as if they were, you know, not covering it up, but really, um, just really, so this part of the history has just, it's just fallen out of their both collective memory and not to mention also their history books. There's been a sense in which they've not been as in touch with it as they needed to be, although that's changing. Uh, that's definitely changing. It was beginning to change when I was there in the 90s, but it's really changing now with a lot more African Americans and people from the Caribbean traveling to Africa, visiting the slave castles, visiting the slave museums, um, mm-hmm. making more contacts with people from the continent. There's a lot of it's really exciting, actually, Wanda, what is happening now. There's a kind of bridge that's being built, okay, um, mm-hmm. between the continent and people of African descent on this side. And some of it's happening because we have a lot of Afri- continental Africans who have also migrated in the last 20, 30 years here. But there's a lot that's happening with people going over there. <clears throat> and um, I find that that's another hopeful way to look at this, if you will. It's going to take a long time to really bridge those divides. It, it would <laughs> after 300 years. But, but I, I see it happening. Organizations, individuals are making that kind of commitment. That's exciting. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I was thinking when you were speaking about um, one of the, another one of the contributors to the 1619 um, Project, the New York Times uh, magazine, and uh, I don't remember the name of her book, but in her, it's a novel, and in the story, she's Ghanaian, um, and you know who I'm talking about, I'm sure, 
mm-hmm. you call her name. Mm-hmm. And in the story, um, it's exactly what you say happened. Um, mm-hmm. An African ancestor through, wow, is definitely circuitous, meets an ancestor mm-hmm. that went through the trade like many mm-hmm. generations later. And I was like, mm-hmm. wow, this is so cool. And then they, and then yeah. they, they run it. Yeah. What, what's the writer's name? And do you remember the name of her book? I don't recall it. Um, although okay. I will get it for you so you can put it on your site. Um, okay. Because I yeah, I have the book at home. It was really the, awesome. It's on the tip of my tongue. Yes. But it's, yeah, she it's went to Stanford really, University. Mm-hmm. Yes. It doesn't come to mind. But there, this is where this is the period that we're in, Wanda, where these types mm-hmm. of stories are being envisioned, and it's happening. It's happening. I'm, you know, to speak next week by video because I can't happen to go. They've invited me several times, but I haven't been able to go to mm-hmm. an organization coming out of University of Rhode Island. Um, mm-hmm. They have you know, it's called the Bridge Conference. And literally, they have been forging um, Mm -hmm. a relationship, both scholars and others, forging relationships with Ghana at the University of Ghana and elsewhere. Um, Mm -hmm. They also do mission projects and outreach projects, not just in the cities, but elsewhere in the rural areas. Um, And they bring people every year, every other year, they bring, you know, teams of people to Ghana and um, they are cementing relationships. It's a very exciting time. And, you know, I heard one statistic that only 4% of African Americans or people of African heritage on this side have ever been to the continent. Let's see where that goes in the next mm-hmm. few years. I think those numbers are going to be going up and up and up. And I would encourage mm-hmm. people. I spend a lot of time on the continent. and. Um, it's just enriching in ways that I, I cannot even, we need a whole other show and we will need another show to talk about that because it's an <laughs> um, amazing experience mm-hmm. to do that, to go to different yeah. places, whether it's Kenya or Ghana or wherever, Ethiopia, I've been on different parts, Senegal, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, 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 it must happen. It's, a, it's another mm-hmm. piece of figuring out your identity, you know, and mm-hmm. it's, it's more affordable than people think, and it's well worth it. Well worth it. Right. Yeah. Oh, you know, I'm really, I'm really happy that you did. Um, you know, African Voices of the Atlantic Slave Trade Beyond the Silence and the Shame, because actually that was a project that I was interested in um, uh, doing um, hmm, a number of years ago, and I didn't know that anyone had had done this. You know got the stories of the people that Absolutely. were that were on the other side that were the other remained side. in Africa that lost family because I would mm-hmm. ask my friends who live in the Bay Area that you know um, you know from Nigeria or from mm-hmm. Ghana well sure. well tell me some of the stories of your people like that lost people right. Said, right. we don't talk about it because it's, um, it's it's embarrassing because we weren't able to protect them. We weren't able mm-hmm. to keep keep those family members safe. So mm-hmm. so we don't talk about it. And then mm-hmm. and then I heard mm-hmm. that there were people who escaped from being captured, and then there was like a whole village set up for them um, mm-hmm. in Ghana, you mm-hmm. know. But they weren't connected to 
the community anymore. They were like their own thing. Mm-hmm. Sure, <laughs> yeah. sure. They're like a yeah. diaspora within the the bride within right, the diaspora, right? Right, exactly. right, right. right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm, I'm so glad that you were asking those kinds of questions. I mean, those are the kinds of things that we need to do. You know, that's mm-hmm. how history happens. That's how we we end up getting to know more of it. She's like just asking those types of questions. And and, mm-hmm. and 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 right there in asking people that you knew, you found out one of my central findings, which was that yes, you know, they for a long time they just don't talk about it, and because they they didn't talk about it, and some of that I think is a kind of a trauma. Um, mm-hmm. If you don't talk about it, then you don't really generations later won't have much to tell, right? So mm-hmm. it just kind of compounds itself. But I think there needs to be a lot of healing, and mm-hmm. I like to think that that's the process part of what I'm doing with these books, is promoting um, both racial, intra-racial and interracial healing, um, and you know, helping people to kind of make peace with their history and repair it as best they can, mm-hmm. which leads us to the topic of reparations, because I think reparations is really critical. But mm-hmm. I think reparations is really important on a number of different levels. You know, reparations is not just about money. It's about repairing the memory, you know, um, restoring the breach in the history and restoring the breach between peoples. Um, and uh, I'm going to have to, to leave you today on that note, but I'm hoping that if you are, have any interest to discuss <laughs> reparations on a on a on a larger level, I would be happy to to have a, a, another conversation about that because I think I think the timing is is right and I think the timing is now. Mm-hmm. Oh, that'd be really lovely. Yeah, I would love to talk mm-hmm. to you again about mm-hmm. reparations and about mm-hmm. you know the Chinese that came in you know to work on the plantations that I hadn't known about <laughs> in mm-hmm. this country. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. But the uh, the writer's name is uh, Ya Kayasi. Oh, yeah, and the, and the book is right. Homecoming. Um, yeah, yeah, Homecoming. Mm-hmm. Right, 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 right. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. And there's again, there's more like that out there because we're, mm-hmm. you know, this is the moment we're in. It's the moment of restoration. So, people are imagining it. People are also doing it on the grassroots level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I thought, you know, um, with regards to more of us being able to go you know, home, that mm-hmm. Ethiopian Airlines is getting ready to build this really huge um, uh, airport so that it can have more capacity. And I'm thinking, wow, that would be so cool oh, yeah. to be able to fly Ethiopian, you know, home. Oh, it's one of the best <laughs> airlines in the world, and they already know, have a wonderful airport. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fabulous, yeah. fabulous. <laughs> and they right. already have a great airport. So if they're making room for more, even better. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, right. Keep the money yeah. in the community. Um, well, thank you so much, Dr. Bailey, mm-hmm. you know, for this wonderful part one of our conversation. Definitely yes. want to continue <laughs> and talk about reparations and pick up where we left off. <laughs> I'll get in touch with your people, as they say. Please do. (laughs) Please do. It's a pleasure talking to you, Wanda. And um, much encouragement to you. Thank you. (laughs) Bye. Have a good rest of the day. (laughs) So we're going to play a little bit of um, an interview we had with Joanna uh, Haygood, um, Zako, 
Um, and uh, the um, the conversation was about um, a time in San Francisco where uh, people of African descent decided that they didn't like the way they were being treated and decided to sell away, like leave this place and go somewhere where they could exercise, you know, be treated um, more humanely and, and uh, you know, and, and also, you know, have have an opportunity to um, exercise their human rights and in, in a democracy. So we're not going to be able to play it all. This uh, interview was from, hmm, gosh, 2012, and um, and this particular uh, reenactment of of this particular period of history was on Market Street, September 13th to 16th. Yeah, I, I'm so happy that you are bringing Sailing Away back to San Francisco because I missed it. Oh, I'm really happy that you're going to see it because, you know, I really value your, your input, your feedback, your eye. Hmm. So I'm really excited that you're going to be able to, to experience it this time. Oh, but thank you so much. So so tell tell my audience about, about the story of, you know, these, you know, prominent you know, African-American citizens who decide to leave San Francisco? Well, the story takes place in the mid-19th century, in the, in the 1950s, when San Francisco was really just um, developing. It was just birthing. It was, you know, it, it had, the gold rush had just started, and people were arriving, you know, by the thousands. Um, to the city, and you know there was an enormous growth in population over just a few years. I mean, it went from like 500 to 35,000 in a few years. Mm. So because of that, um, you know there was lots of chaos and uh, you know a lot of unruly and unlawful behavior, and and you know the Barbary Coast story is I think well known by by many people, but it was you know the Wild West, and. Um, among all of these uh, people who were coming, there were, you know, large, you know, by the standard of the day, numbers of African Americans considering moving to the West, you know, with the promise of, of a better life. And um, uh, California has, a fun, has an interesting history in that it was... Um, brought into the Union as part of the Compromise of uh, 1850, which was basically uh, a compromise around the Fugitive Slave Act. So in, um, as a uh, kind of an exchange between the kind of abolitionist states and the activists and the slaveholding states and the slaveholders, um, you know, in the in government, they, they 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 traded this union for the the passing of this this law, and so there's this kind of a in that there's this kind of tricky paradox about you know what what later happened. You know, so uh, California is admitted, and and it, people are feeling like it had been a, a a kind of a a big prize for the abolitionists, but. As people, as African Americans started migrating, there was a fear um, among those here in California that there would be uh, competition for 
um, you know, for the riches that were going to be gained through this gold rush. So there was, you know, a, a Fugitive Slave Act that was passed here in California in 1852, and there were different laws that started popping up. You know, the governor tried to pass an, uh, an exclusion law that would would uh, ban African Americans from from migrating to California. And even though that didn't pass, there were a lot of laws that then started to spring up that would um, would basically kind of squash any type of civil rights that African Americans would then have here. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of this wonder, this interesting paradox between, right, we're going to, you know, create this free state, and yet, uh, and people arrived here, you know, thinking that this would be true, and yet it ended up being, um, you know, similar to, um, you know, what people had left, or it was definitely far from the promise that they had actually expected. So uh, so this group um, in this first wave, there were people who arrived, um, you know, people who had worked in the abolition, abolition movement, um, people who were scholars who were free, some who were, who were slaves that had bought their freedom. Um, they were very educated people, mm -hmm. um, incredible leaders and, and spokesmen and women. Um, entrepreneurs, um, and they, you know, arrived trying to make their way, um, you know, through, through this, you know, the the new land, and the um, and the legislature that had been developed during that time, and I guess at some point, you know, we all give in, we all buckle to the pressures of and the stresses of this, you know, level of discrimination. And, um, and I think the tipping point was when um, the legislature had, had passed uh, the testimony, uh, the right of testimony, which uh, basically banned African Americans from uh, testifying in court. Mm -hmm. And so there was, a, you know, an onslaught of varying crimes, you know, anywhere from robbery to, um, you know, beatings to murder, um, where African Americans wouldn't have any recourse for justice. So um, at that point, there had been a number of meetings, there have been um, conventions that had been held um, in Sacramento and also in, in San Francisco where, um, where African Americans came together and discussed the, you know, all the various implications of the the numerous laws at that point um, that had been passed and that were or being introduced, and um, at some point a group decided that they were going to start looking for a new place. Now, simultaneously, there was also a new gold rush that was happening up in Victoria, along the Fraser River, and that seemed to, uh, you know offer an opportunity to to try something different, that there's going to be, you know, a, a, another wave of, of immigrants moving. There would be need um, for services and so on, and the possibility of, 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 of working and um, basically settling in a new community where there would be less stress around, um, you know, the issues that I mentioned. 
And so they had gotten an invitation from the governor, who was actually mixed race, and he was very excited about the idea. And um, so over the course of the year, uh, um, you know, and this is I'm now into 1858, um, hundreds of African Americans sailed up to Victoria and settled there. Hmm. And, um, you know, that is right now, I mean, there's still an African American community there that can be traced back to this migration. Um, Some of the characters in this particular piece, um, you know, returned back to the United States after, excuse me, after the Civil War, but many people remained there. So this piece um, is really about bringing this history to life primarily because it's it's an extraordinary story, mm-hmm. but also because many of these people have, and their histories have disappeared from our memories here in this area. And, you know, sometimes I will, people will ask me about the piece and I will mention a few names, you know, Mifflin Gibbs being one of them, or even Mary Ellen Pleasant, who I think enjoys, you know, some notoriety, you know, and, and, and some notice um, with local people. But many people don't, know who she is and doesn't you know they won't recognize any of the names of these characters mm-hmm. and so i think you know that their story is very very important and they also um they also speak to what's happening now in in california and in, in san francisco specifically um around out migration of african americans and <clears throat> i thought you know that i had read an article I guess when I first started working on this piece a couple of years ago, or when we first presented it, um, I had read an article about about the number of African Americans who were leaving San Francisco, and I discovered this history kind of simultaneously. And I thought, how interesting! What what an interesting parallel um, in that people are leaving for somewhat similar reasons. You know the you know lack of education, kind of the you know the the lack of um, you know the uh, lack of opportunity, um, the kind of the all the consequences of of um, you know all the di- discriminatory um, kind of social practices that that have gone on for many many years. Um, you know, uh, I don't know if I should said education, but you know mm-hmm. housing. Um, crime, violence, and so I, I just thought that that was really interesting, and that those two conversations I think are are really important to have, and I think that this particular history is is a is a great place to start, and and all of the things that also it, it implies just uh, uh, in in terms of being African American in this country. I mean, you know, we're always struggling for a place. Mm-hmm. You know, we've we're like constantly on the move um you know we've migrated from the south up to the north and then north up to the west and we're you know there's this there's this um lack of of uh kind of groundedness that i feel that we have that we, we're, we're constantly being uprooted you know in search of this place that's going to be better for mm-hmm. us. and um so anyway so that's kind of in the long-winded response. <laughs> um, 
kind of moving around in circles here, but um, <laughs> but that's that's kind of what the piece is about. And I'm mm-hmm. I'm really happy this time that I uh, ha- have an opportunity to um, engage some scholars um, in this mm-hmm. area, uh, people historians who have really 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 um, researched this history. Uh, in a much deeper way than than I have spent, you know, many years with a with a, you know, uh, primary focus of kind of unearthing some of this history, um, as well as some people who have been um, working on uh, these studies about the out migration of African Americans over the last mm-hmm. twenty and thirty years here in San Francisco. So they're going to be um, part of a panel that will be hosted. Um, by MOAD, um, the Museum of the African Diaspora, and the California Historical Society mm-hmm. um, on our first day. So I'm, I'm really excited about that, and, and I'm very excited about learning more myself because I don't, I don't feel like, you know, I have um, completely captured everything. I mean, it's, what's interesting about doing a piece like this is, um, and doing any kind of historical piece, is that every year um, there's new information Mm-hmm. Certainly, certainly. Um, there's new things that get discovered and um, new uh, information that actually, um, you know, discredits the information that you've just that you've just spent your you know <laughs> last three years studying. And you know, it's it's, it's all very very interesting. So, mm-hmm. um, but uh, well, go ahead. You can ask a question because I yeah yeah. Well, doing. well, I just wanted to um, you know let our audience know that um, sailing away is uh, three continuous cycles, performances given in three uh, continuous cycles, um, began on September 13th, 14th, 15th, and 16th, uh, 12 noon, 1.30 p.m., and 3 p.m. daily starting at Market and Powell. That's, you know, right where the cable car is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and all the stores. Spot. Right, definitely. And, and you know, people can just follow, follow the... Uh, the dancers down market as they sail away, and uh, and the uh, the discussion uh, that's going to be hosted by Moad it's really exciting. Um, the panel discussion is taking place uh, at the California Historical Society, and that's six seven eight Mission Street at Third, and uh, Thursday September thirteenth at five, and then there's going to be a reception after that, and. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, with regards to um, the performance from Dr. Uh, Shushio Bibbs, mm-hmm. uh, performing, uh, portraying the 19th century civil rights activist Mary Ellen Pleasant, is that for the school assembly or is that for a part of the panel discussion, it's, too? It's for the school assembly. Yeah, that's going to really be great because you all are located in Bayview Hunters Point. Yeah, yeah. And I'm that's, very excited. And we, some of the children who will be at the assembly are kids that um, that we work with work with during the year um, nice. and uh, I am hoping that that's that this subject and this piece will be the focus of this year's um, this year's work with the with the young people but it is um, actually open we've we've invited oh super um, we've invited people from the community to, to join yeah. us and that's going to be on yes yeah, so tomorrow September 11th yeah, um, um, see yeah. tomorrow yeah, ten thirty in the morning. Um, thirty in the morning. Yeah, um, seven uh, four seven zero five Third Street. That's the um, the famous historic uh, landmark on uh, the Bayview Opera House. 
And so that's a school assembly with the performance. And, uh, and then back to the panel discussion, um, let's see, who are you going to have there? You're going to have yourself. Yeah, Sharon Hewitt, <laughs> Hewitt from mm-hmm. Claire, and okay. she sat on the Mayor's Commission for Out Migration in 2009. Okay. So she's going to bring a really interesting perspective. Um, Jan Baptiste, uh, Baptiste Atkins, who's just written and published a book um, called uh, African Americans in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and Dr. Shushil Bibbs, as you mentioned, she's going to be. Um, she has, you know, has spent a, a number of years interpreting, researching, and interpreting um, Mary Ellen Pleasant. Mm. And our moderator is going to be Gregory Hodge, who is a a youth activist in our community. Oh, that's Today. great! So bridging the generations too. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. That's really yeah. excellent. Yeah, it's excellent. Really excited about it. Yeah. So you yourself, um, you know, migrated. Um, let's see about, let's see, over thirty years ago from yes. the East Coast to yeah. the West Coast, and um, and and your your dance company, which you co-founded, Zako um, Dance Theater, um, you do performance work that investigates um, dance as it relates to place. And so all of your work has, you know, a sort of specificity, specificity of of yeah of 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 the ground and the area that it occupies. I mean, that's just a part as much a part of the piece as the dancers and uh, the story. Um, my favorite by far, it still is, even though I love everything, is when we were at the airport. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and people were migrating, like coming in, you know, it's like, you know, like, oh, how did we get here as African people? Yeah, that was so, so beautiful. People in the air, because you also have people flying in your pieces. Yeah. <laughs> Although they're not going to be flying down market, no, they're going to be walking. Be flying down market, <laughs> yeah. That was a little bit out of our budget. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so I was you could talk a bit about you know, um, how how you translated these stories of these people of African descent. I believe there are like 800 of them. And I remember going to this really wonderful um, sort of symposia, symposium at the um, uh, African-American Art and Culture Complex. And I think um, Reverend Amos Brown was there. Mm-hmm. And it was the, an- the 200th anniversary, anniversary of this, this migration. And they had a big special thing that the parks and uh, um, the National Park Service was facilitating. And and there was um, uh, the, the the Commodore, the steamer, the Commodore was there. People could actually go to the pier and sort of reenact and re-experience. Yeah, it was the 150th anniversary, right, commemoration. Yeah, and, and then and then here comes, you know, Joanna, like right yeah. on time. Like, and I was really <laughs> sorry that I missed that event. And, um, you know, when I was speaking earlier about, you know, reading this article about the out-migration, and then I bumped into this other, you know, the articles about that at particular event, and that's how that history started to mm. uh, make sense you know, come to life for me. And so I was really sorry. I think it was just like, you know, I don't know, it was a matter of moments after it happened. I was like, oh, oh my God, wow. I can't believe that I missed that. It's really extraordinary. But I did have an opportunity to, you know, to, um, you know, to to speak with Guy Washington from the uh, Park Service, and he shared all of his research with me. And nice. so I did have, you know, connection with, you know, that, that um you know that event in in that way in, in mm-hmm. terms of the research, but I was sorry that I 
I, I couldn't participate, um, you know, during that time. But, um, well, the, I'll, I'll say that uh, the piece itself is um, there are uh, the characters move down Market Street, and they have a series of um, solos that each of them do. They come together um, in different parts, and they and they create a number of tableaus um, uh, along the way as well. And um, basically, you know, they're in period dress, and they are carrying different parts of the ship. Uh, oh. You know, they have this big anchor, and there's a... Um, there's a um, a big ship's wheel. There's a bell, mm. and you know there are various other props that you know um, kind of work as different metaphors for their trip. And um, and then there's a newsy character who who hands out this newspaper um, along the way. She kind of accompanies the group and um, you know acts as a you know, basically a, new, a newsy, and and so there's a program that is in the form of a newspaper, obviously, mm. and inside of the newspaper is a profile of each of the characters and some history uh, behind the piece, um, with historic photographs, and so people can kind of engage in the piece in a in a couple of ways. They can watch the characters, and and of course all the performers are extraordinary. They're very, very strong. Mm-hmm. And especially within the context of this kind of, like, the, what I call the field of noise, <laughs> um, you know, on Market Street. But um, having them kind of juxtaposed to the the goings-on of present day is, is very striking. And to think that these people, these specific people, were actually engaging in business and, and engaging with each other on this street you know, in this area, um, you know, 150-some-odd years ago is, is also very striking. It's almost like, you know, their, their ghosts have come back, and, and yet they're, they're, they're kind of stronger than kind of... They don't feel ghostly. They feel real. Mm-hmm. And um, so um, that's, you know, I, I wanted to make a, an installation piece, and I wanted it to be embedded in, on the street, so it wasn't, it didn't have kind of a beginning. I mean, it does have a beginning and an end, mm-hmm. but it doesn't exactly feel like that. It feels like it's ongoing. And I and I've often been interested in kind of this, um, you know, this notion of time and and how we describe it and how we experience it, and um, you know, trying to see the two, you know, understanding that you know, what our experiences are now are completely tied to what was then. So, so in fact, we're still, part of us is still living in the 19th century. You know, part of our ideas and, you know, our, our progress is based on what's happened. And so I, I think kind of seeing these two time frames kind of pushing against each other, you know, you know in this kind of parallel universe here, this parallel reality, um, is, is really interesting. And, you know, the characters don't exactly, they don't overtly interact with people on the street. Mm-hmm. They interact with each other, but they're very, um, um, but, and at the same time, they feel very connected. You don't feel like you can't walk up to them and look at them and be close to them. 
Um, but, you know, they're not going to talk. They don't speak during this, this show. So there's, there's a really interesting relationship between the audience and, and the performers. And, of course, they're, they're, they're stunning in terms of their, the way that they look. I mean, they're all very handsome people, and um, I, I tried to cast the, the show so the characters looked, there's something similar in the way that they look or feel to the characters that they're portraying. Oh. And they're dressed in, in, in really beautiful, um, you know, 19th century clothing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wanted to say that, you know, not, not everyone, not every um, African-American that migrated to San Francisco ended up, you know, or, or, or was, a, you know, a, a well-off um, person. I mean, I think that there's, you know, range in class and, and, and opportunities even back then, and probably most were still very poor. <clears throat> but this particular group, um, these were very accomplished people mm-hmm. um, and very highly successful in terms of their businesses. So I thought that that was interesting. And, and actually, um, Sushil Bids um, is... Uh, working on a yeah, so I, <laughs> I'm so happy that let me let me unmute my mic. <laughs> well, if you want to hear the rest of that wonderful conversation with Joanna Haygood, um, Mzako, a dance company sell, about selling away. You have to go into the archives. It was. Um, back in 2012, and and we are so excited to have in the studio um, Dara Kale, and, um, and I don't know, she, she seems to be joined by someone else, so she has to tell us who's joining joining her. Hi, Dara. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Hi. So Hello. there's Dara, and who Hi. else is joining us? Uh, my name is Brian. Okay, and and you're and I was I was in, I was enjoying listening to your show and it's oh. just very fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, How you doing? You. Oh, I'm good. Well, you're I'm welcome. Good. Super. Yeah, wow. We hardly are. ever get um have a you know people you know calling in and talking to us. So that's super. Okay. So I'm gonna um, mute your mic and. Um, and, and uh, well, can I, before you mute my mic, I, I I haven't really listened to blog talk shows before, and I think you're one of the mm-hmm. best, and I love the voice and your guests and everything. Um, mm-hmm. I know it's a music show. I can I I just want to know what your thoughts about Whitney Houston, and, and you think it was suicide or murder? Oh well, this isn't a music show, and um, hmm, Dar, do you have any thoughts? Um, I'm not going to comment on that. I'm going to I'm going to just talk about my film when when we're at that point. But uh, I'll leave that okay. I'll leave that to others to talk about. Yeah, me too. Oh, the, oh she, all right. What's the name of your film, dear? Well, you'll be you'll be uh, hearing all about it. So um, so I'm going like to ask porn? you. To, Can I rent it? Oh my goodness. Uh, well, I was just wondering if you know she sounds so hot. Okay, Dara? Yep, I'm here. Okay, good. (laughs) 
Interesting. All right. I thought yeah. you had someone joining you because I'm like, no, no, I, I didn't expect me. I'm not people. sure who that was. <laughs> yep, it's just me. That was the plan. Okay. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So, um, your film, um, gosh, um, we cry power, and and you're having mm. a um, a sneak preview because it's still being made because <laughs> yep. we haven't gotten to Washington yet uh, on June twentieth. Uh, for the uh, Poor People Movement, uh, with with uh, Reverend uh, William Barber and um, and uh, what's the other pastor's name? Uh, Theo Harris. The other pastor is the other co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign National Call for Moral Revival. Her name is Reverend Liz Theo Harris, and she's mm-hmm. based uh, here in New York, actually. Um, which is oh, which okay. is actually through knowing her that I. I got in touch with uh, the movement and began making the film. So it's mm-hmm. the two of them, and of course, many, many thousands of leaders as well around the country. Right, right, yeah. And and I was reading your bio. It's like, oh, you're a South African filmmaker mm-hmm. and writer based in New York now. It's like, okay, so yeah. you like were raised in South Africa, and then you came I here. I was raised in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, and what part? Actually, um, in Cape Town. In okay. Cape Town. Yeah, so I actually made my first film in South Africa, and uh, this, that film was about a social movement, and and so got very uh, interested in in these movements, to you know for for social change, um, and so it was through that work that I you know began began working with with the this, the Poor People's Campaign here in the states. So it's all it's all connected, um, but it has been a roundabout journey for sure. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. It says uh, you you recently worked with Doc Society to produce a podcast about women mm-hmm. at the forefront of climate justice mm-hmm. around the world, hosted by mm-hmm. Mary Robinson, the former president of Ireland, and yeah. you were supervising editor and writer on the XQ Institute. Uh, documentaries about rethinking high school education broadcast on NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox featuring uh, Viola da- Davis and Tom Hanks. Mm-hmm. Really? Oh, wow, mm-hmm. that's pretty cool. <laughs> the show had 26 million viewers. And you were the creative producer and director for the Ford Foundation's, uh, how do you pronounce it? Uh, hashtag is. Yeah, okay. yeah, it was a it was a, a video campaign, uh, mm-hmm. really about all different kinds of inequality around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really a theme, a theme of all of my work, and also of this of this upcoming film, We Cry yeah. Power, which which is going to be screening mm-hmm. tomorrow in San Francisco. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And this one here, um, inequality is hashtag inequality is. Included a, a rare voice, including Elton John, Gloria Steinem, and Richard Branson, uh, who share their perspectives on the subject of inequality. Um, and your editing work was featured in uh, Albert. How do you pronounce that last name? Mazel's. <laughs> Mazel's film. Mazel's. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, tell us about um, the screening. Where is it? <laughs> Tomorrow sure. um, in San Francisco. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, um, I'll get. I'll, I'll actually get. We've actually got a ton of um, screenings happening all over the country. Um, mm-hmm. So the screening in San Francisco is is just one of about fifty different screenings. 
Um, oh, similar to similar to the way that it was similar to the way that um, um, the uh, the campaign is moving throughout the country, building up exactly. momentum. Yeah, the we must do more, mobilizing, mm-hmm. organizing, re- registering, and educating. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, the idea was really that you know really specifically focused around um, you know the, the the holiday on Monday, mm-hmm. honoring Reverend Justice. King's work and, and looking at all of these folks around the country who are picking up the baton and continuing the work to actually address poverty in this country as well as all the other issues um, that come along with poverty, systemic racism, um, you know, climate devastation um, and, and the sort of militarism and this kind of war economy that is um, really devastating. Um, and just to, just to get back to your question about where the, the screening is, tomorrow it's going to be in San Francisco at the Redstone Building. And for folks oh, right, who right. have been there, mm-hmm. it's 2640 16th Street. Um, and that's going to be, the film screening is going to be from 6 to 8 p.m. So the film is, is just under an hour, and then there'll be, you know, people, folks speaking and, and you know, at the other kinds of discussion around the film. So I oh, hope cool. folks can, can go and join, yeah. Oh, that's going to be excellent. Is it free? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, Are you flying in? I'm not, actually, just because the, the screenings are happening all over. And so um, <laughs> I'm going to be, you know, based in New York. There was a screening in New York um, on Sunday. So um, mm. I'm actually sticking local and... Um, you know, just kind of calling in um, on Skype or other other forms where where needs be. But but the beauty of the Poor People's Campaign is really that there are these you know Poor People's Campaign um, committees in every state now, um, or at least most of the states, um, including Puerto Rico and Hawaii and Alaska. And so you know, it's really the the film screenings are a way for folks to come locally and, and really uh, join up with with the local um, chapters. And so they'll be having um, people who are, you know, affected by these issues of, of poverty and, and systemic racism um, and climate change. You know, people who are directly affected will be will be actually leading those screenings and speaking um, rather than, you know, me as the filmmaker. I mean, I think I think the, the film hopefully can speak speak for itself, um, but it's really a platform for, for these voices to be able to share their stories and, and figure out how, you know, how to build power and, and of, of poor people themselves in, in all of these different local struggles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell us what you've been up to. How have you been documenting this, this wonderful movement? Um, and, 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 you know, sort yeah. of, you know, tell, tell us about some of those, these moments, sure. you know, as a director that are sitting with you, you sure. know, like, oh my gosh, really? Did I just witness this? Yeah. Did I just see yeah, that? No, oh it was, <laughs> it's, it's been pretty intense. I mean, I, I actually started uh, following the work of, of uh, Reverend Dr. Uh, William Barber when he was doing the Moral Mondays movement in yes. North Carolina. And that movement, mm-hmm. you know, has has grown and continues to this day, um, and and has been very successful both on the streets, you know, the sort of direct action, but also in the court. And so they actually have, you know, were successful in in getting some of the, you know, the 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 voter suppression laws actually struck from the books 
in North Carolina, um, those laws were, were deemed by a judge to, to be surgically racist. <laughs> and so, you know, just, just see, being very inspired by, by the work there. And then, of course, seeing the work um, building around the country led by Reverend Dr. Lucia Harris, um, who's based out of the Cairo Center here in New York. I was following that work and, and being involved just kind of as a, you know, documenting and, and making short videos for them. And then it was really last, uh, I'm sorry, 2018, when the Poor People's Campaign decided to launch officially with six straight weeks of direct action. And they, um, you know, it was sort of this demonstration and dramatization of the conditions of, of poverty that's affecting so many people in this country. I mean, the, the, the number is, is that the Poor People's Campaign uses is, is not this number of 40 million um, poor people around the country. It's actually 140 million if you, um, if you take into account the rising cost of living and, um, you know, looking at the people who can't survive without some form of assistance, that's 140 million. And so this is a very big issue in this country and it, it hasn't been really um, addressed by the, the elected officials. And so, the, the you know, it was during those 40 days, I was like, okay, how are we going to do this? Because it's happening around the country. And I was able to, with the help of so many people around the country, able to have crews um, embedded with the Poor People's Campaign in many, many different states. And so we were able to capture uh, these, this direct action every Monday at state capitals around the country. People would um, submit to civil disobedience. Um, and, and the idea was not just to get arrested, but the idea was to deliver the demands. Of the political campaign, you know these demands are very specific. They've been um, very carefully um, chosen by by these committees all around the country, and, and those demands include, you know, living wages, um, clean water and air, a just immigration policy, um, an end to militarization of, of local communities. Um, all of these different demands. Um, it's a very wide ranging um, campaign, but but the idea is that you know we can't we can't just you know, deal with poverty. We have to just deal with all of these systemically and sparking injustices. Um, so I had these, uh, these crews around the country, and and that was intense. <laughs> I was very relieved when the 40 days of action were over. <laughs> um, but then, of course, the the work continued um, and actually grew um, because because the campaign really began growing um, exponentially from there. And so, so part of the, the challenge was being everywhere at once, really, which is, which is kind of what um, Reverend Dr. William Barber and Leslie Harris, they are all over the country all the time, you know, meeting and organizing and educating, mobilizing this, this movement, um, and especially focusing right now on, on the demand for um, a televised debate on poverty. That is really the, the focus right now. Um, and actually um, at the Democratic uh, National, the, at the debate um, last weekend, uh, they were protesting outside the, the hall where, where the debate was happening um, to, to kind of push for, uh, push for a full, de full debate. Um, and, and knowing that that is, you know, something that, you know, 
100 million people who, who didn't vote in the last elections in 2016, knowing that, that they didn't see their, their, um, their issues reflected in, in, the, in, the, um, in any of the debates. And so this time, um, the Poor People's Campaign is really wanting to put poverty on, on the sort of you know, national agenda. So that's the, uh, that's the focus right now. Um, and there's a letter writing campaign that's, that's taking off right now. Um, mm-hmm. If any, any of your listeners want to find out more, they can go to the Poor People's Campaign website. That's poorpeoplescampaign.org. Um, and, you know, we're, we're hoping that the documentary just is a, is a way for people to uh, catch a glimpse of, of what this movement is really all about and meet some of the people across the country who are leading it. Um, we follow, uh, you know, a number of different stories um, that deal with, you know, people who are kind of rising up uh, to join this movement from all walks of life. You know, it's really um, people, people of all different faiths and also people not of faith, you know, people who are coming to this because they, they believe in, in these, you know, in this fight. So, um, yeah, and, and of course, uh, the film, you know, it's very hard to know when to stop filming, um, which is why we're doing these, <laughs> these uh, sort of work in progress screenings around the country, because the movement is, is continuing and, and growing, you know. So, um, right, you know, right now we have, uh, we have created a short version of the film that's under an hour, um, and the, the, the feature-length film, which will be, you know, a full, full-length documentary, will be released. Um, in a few months' time, we are uh, nearing completion. So, um, so if your listeners want to find out when the finished film will be out, they can go to our website, which is www.wecriedpower.com, um, and they can actually just sign up for updates, and, and we'll, we'll notify people when when they can see the film in their in their town or city. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Why don't we uh, why don't we play the trailer and then come back and talk about um, sure. some of these uh, folks mm-hmm. that are um, sort of um, you know mm-hmm. taking taking up leadership mm-hmm. you know in this movement. Yeah, sounds good. It is my hope that we will get together and be together to gain power for poor people to solve the problem of poverty. The greatest fear has always been black and white and brown coming together and forming a gender together. That, that sends tremors through the extremist body. What we are doing today with the Poor People's Campaign is happening in 31 other states. At the same time, they are going to hear us. The real heroes and heroines of this country are folks who are willing to come forward with the solutions at hand to resolve those problems. One out of 16 people in Aberdeen are homeless. This is a place where people often end up. Until people have a quarrel with this way of existence, then we can't even have transformation because nobody's even questioning. It's really beat into you that you know, you're poor and it's your fault. I just know that everything that's happening to us isn't right and it makes me mad. So I want to be a part of doing something about it. We have a complete plan. We're not here talking about Democrat or Republican. And if we're going to have this conversation, let's start with the facts. People are dying from poverty. 
I'm a pastor. I bury people because of these politics. This system is not broken. It was never made for us. Will your campaign advocate for a complete debate on the issue of poverty in the United States of America? Yes. Nothing like this has ever happened before. Uh, presidential Forum for the Poor People's Campaign. What is your plan to secure, to secure decent and affordable housing for all? Yeah, I, I understand, but this is the people's house. Young people better be engaged because they are trying to set in place policies that will exist 30 and 40 years from now. It's movement time, brother. It's movement time. <laughs> uh, that was nice. <laughs> Thank you. I like that song. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, give the people, give the people what, they what they want. want. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's, just, yeah. it's actually a song that, that the Poor People's Campaign plays at a lot of rallies. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's just one of those songs from the 70s. It's just like so in tune with, I think it was the 70s, um, the OJs. But it's just so mm-hmm. in tune with like what where we are at today. You know, mm-hmm. um, we need we need certain things to live, and and when you know we're paying taxes and not getting them, and and you know there's a there's a fight to be had to to make things right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, mm-hmm. definitely. So, um, yeah, um, tell me about you know some of these these people that that you highlight um, in the um, Mm-hmm. Uh, in the section called characters. Mm. <laughs> sure, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So we, and, you know, it, it it is hard hard of course to to tell a story about so many people, and so the the film tries to balance you know telling the story, the sort of macro story of of the the growth of you know this new movement, the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, and you know also showing a little bit of the history of it, you know, it really came out of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's final campaign before he was assassinated. He's, you know, he brought together leaders from many, many different organizations from all around the country, you know, from all walks of life, um, powerful leaders, um, like, like some of the women who were leading the welfare rights movement, um, uh, uh, Cesar Chavez, you know, the, the farm workers and, you know, all of these different kinds of leaders who were really coming together across racial divisions for the first time. And, and that was Dr. King's vision for a poor people's campaign. And of course, um, that campaign, it did continue for a while, but it never really took off after Dr. King was assassinated. Um, it was never, you know, it wasn't sustained. And so that was, you know, kind of seeing 50 years later that these conditions are still, you know, as bad, if not worse, um, and people are really struggling and, and indeed dying from from poverty and, and from, you know, the sort of lack of health care, uh, low wages, um, 
not being safe, you know, poor communities being affected, uh, you know, first by by the ecological devastation happening in this country. So that was, you know, that was the, the idea of, of Reverend Dr. Uh, William Barber and Leslie Harris picking up the baton from Dr. King and from those leaders of the past. So so the film does focus on, on the two the two co chairs, uh, Reverend Barber and Reverend Lucio Harris. But then we also um follow some stories around the country of leaders who are also stepping up to join this campaign. Uh one of the people who I met pretty early on who you heard in that clip, uh Michelle Buckmaster, she is a, a millennial. Um she she's She's white. She was uh, homeless for many, many years, um, and she, you know, she was living in her car when she was nine months pregnant. In, in she, she lives in in Washington, um, in uh, close to Aberdeen, which is about two hours drive from Seattle. You know, so so you know, a place where in Aberdeen, one in sixteen people are homeless, and it's a place that Reverend Barbara visited. Um, and and you know he he was going around the country as was Reverend Lucio Harris going around the country meeting with with communities where you know just really really struggling to survive um, and and you know together with with Michelle and Reverend Barbara we went to visit this homeless encampment that was you know very I was just shocked to see in this country um, people who were young, you know, that was just a really heartbreaking thing just to see, you know, that there is a stereotype of, of homelessness in this, in this country that, you know, that it's, you know, people who have, have addiction problems, you know, struggling with addiction or, you know, veterans, but it's actually so much broader than that. And often homelessness is, is hidden because folks are, are couch surfing or, you know, might get a, a place for a little while, but but that's short lived. And um, so, you know, to see the the sort of very visible these tent encampments, and of course, you know, that I'm sure you know your listeners in San Francisco see that every day as well. You know, that that this mm-hmm. the sort of most extreme, most visible form of poverty is is often these these encampments where people who you know. They, they are pushed out of the shelter system or for whatever reason can't be in shelters. Often there aren't enough shelters. Um, certainly in Aberdeen, that's the case. There, there really is, is no, nowhere else for people to go. So they, so they build, you know, build shacks and shanty, shanties, um, much like what happens in, in my country in South Africa. Um, so, so I met Michelle there and I just loved her immediately. She just has kind of an attitude of just no. She does not mess around. <laughs> she calls herself, a, you know, she, her and her organization. They're radical rednecks. <laughs> you know, they, um, radical you rednecks. know, they really <laughs> radical rednecks. And she, you know, she doesn't. She is not. I like that she was. You know, she's so different to Reverend Barber. I mean, she does not. She is not a church person, as she says. <laughs> You know, but, but she also appreciates the role that the church has played in um, in actually doing what you know what is historically in the Bible. Jesus's role was was to care for the least of these and the poor and the sick and the hungry. And so, you know, she's kind of teamed up with these um, chaplains in her area and and 
Michelle, you know, her, I, I, I just became really close with her and, and I just like her, I like her take on things, you know, as a young white millennial, she sees her struggle as connected to the struggle of someone who she might not have anything in common with someone who is, you know, who is black, who's poor as well, you know, in, in, for example, Selma, Alabama, um, she, she, and through the poor people's campaign and through Reverend Barber and Reverend Liz's work, she hooks up with, with other people who are in, in a similar position as her, you know, really seeing that, you know, the, the low wage work and the lack of healthcare and the lack of affordable housing, um, and ecological devastation, all of these things are kind of coming together to really, um, push, push people's backs against the wall. And so, you know, something like the Poor People's Campaign is, you know, also, you know, including struggles like, um, like the struggle against gun violence and the struggle against, um, you know, this sort of false uh, religious narrative that's put forth that says, you know, if you're Christian, you're, all you have to do is, is you know, say, say prayers in school and, and fight against um you know, fight against abortion, and, and that's your duty as a Christian. So, you know, so all of these kind of um, ideas are coming together in, in the Poor People's Campaign. So, you know, with, with Mushaila, I just, I liked her, I liked her, her take on things, and, and I, I liked to, to sort of see her growing as a leader and actually seeing herself as a leader. You know, the, the part of the beauty of the campaign is, is that, you know, people who don't see themselves reflected in, in, in certainly in the par- partisan politics of this country, people like, you know, like Shaila are, are, have a, find a place and find a voice. So she, she was one of the, the people who I, I, you know, it was very hard to get her to, to be on camera because she, you know, she, she, she was quite shy in the beginning. She, she didn't, know why I was you know interested in following her story but but you know over time she um it's just just a beautiful thing to just see her blossom into into a leadership role in the in the campaign um one of the other women that that I followed her story was um based in Selma Alabama Kelly Greer she mm-hmm. uh she actually lost her daughter Venus uh, Venus was 37 when she died from um, advanced breast cancer that, you know, as Kelly says in the film, could have been prevented with a mammogram. Mm-hmm. But, but Alabama actually was one of the states that refused to, to um, mm. expand Medicare. Um, and so, uh, you know, so they did not have Medicare. They did not, they could not afford to do anything other than go to the emergency room, which is, of course, is, is what many poor people in this country use. The you have to go to the emergency room, and you know, while the emergency room doesn't turn people away, they also did not give um, Pally's daughter Venus the care that she needed to to catch this, you know, very beginning breast cancer to catch it and and it spread. And it spread all over her body, and she had to be approved of of for everything that she needed. And eventually, the cancer just took over her body and and went into her brain. And you know, that's it's just one of those such you know heartbreaking, tragic stories that we unfortunately hear every day in this country. And 
Um, and Kali is is has also become like Michelle a leader in in the poor people's campaign, and you know is is turning this tragedy in her life and this you know this pain that she's gone through of losing her daughter. Um, she's turning that into um, into a power, you know powerful testimony, and and she has actually had the opportunity to testify in Congress at the small budget committee hearing. Um, that the Poor People's Campaign was, you know, presented their full budget request to, mm-hmm. you know, so I think it's it's this idea of all across the country, these these are not just stories, you know, these are people's lives, um, and and that that a lot of this pain and suffering can can actually be fixed, you know. I think that's one of the big ideas that the film explores is is you know what uh, what can be done to to get us out of this left versus right uh, thinking or, or out of the thinking that, you know, we don't have the money to fix these problems because what the Poor People's Campaign, um, their, their sort of policy analysts have found is that, is that the money does, there is the money to, to address these problems and that we actually can fix, fix these problems and we can fix them sooner <laughs> rather than later. You know, the sort of, we can raise the minimum wage to to a living wage and and it doesn't have to be done incrementally that that it it needs to be done now so i think you know it's just a it's a you know it's it's in the film we see this these demands come together and and this um these stories unfold uh through through the personal story through the personal journeys of of folks like Kelly Greer in in Alabama and i i tracked you know tracked her story i went to Alabama to Selma a number of times and, and you know you see these journeys unfold in the film over a few years. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to um uh to the completed film. I didn't know that you were gonna finish it before June. Mm-hmm. So That's the idea. Wow. We'll see. We mm-hmm. are editing at the moment and you know these mm-hmm. these things just have to take the time they take, but we are, um, that's why we have this, this, you know, shorter version that's coming out now um, that's mm-hmm. playing around the country this week. Right, yeah. So um, just sort of in closing, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what draws you to this kind of work because you're from South Africa, um, mm-hmm. but you're not an African. You know, mm-hmm. so I don't know where your people came from to be mm-hmm. in South Africa for you to grow yeah. up there. And yeah. I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about mm-hmm. sort of, you know, how you mm-hmm. find yourself situated in, in this particular movement, coming from a place, yeah. you know, that, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, things are not right still <laughs> for the folks no. that indigenous no. and, you know, to, to, uh-huh. to that, that nation. Yeah. yeah. And that's, you know, for me, it's been a, a journey of conscience. I mean, I grew up in during apartheid. So I was, you know, a teenager when this, you know, horrific system of apartheid ended and I went to a segregated school and I lived in a segregated suburb. And, you know, I had, you know, grew up for a white person in South Africa. We were pretty poor. I mean, I had a you know, single mom, school teacher, you know, there was not a lot of money going around, but still, you know, as a, as a white person growing up during apartheid, I, it was a, it, would, it took me a while to realize that actually I did benefit from that system, 
and and through becoming a first a journalist and and then a documentary filmmaker, I saw that you know this was a role that I could play was was documenting some of these struggles and and of course always questioning my own role as a filmmaker, my own role as um, a person of of privilege and in, in that I have a video camera, you know, and, and that I was able to um, make make the film that I made in South Africa um, with people who who really were, you know, struggling, um, but who, who saw, saw the value of a documentary film in their work. And so, you know, that film was called Jill and Bella. I finished it um, about 10 years ago. And so, you know, I think I think for me, I was lucky to to meet an important book campaign about um, about 15 years ago when I first came to this country. And through that, you know, really started to see my own struggle, you know, sometimes for housing, my own struggle for healthcare, you know, as a as a freelancer, also, you know, trying to trying to survive in a city with with no affordable housing, where the range is very high. Seeing my struggle as as connected to to the struggle of so many other people in this country, you know, so it's not it's not a you know a situation for me of making a film about people. I really you know I, I consider all of the, the people that I've, I've been filming with as um, as friends and and sort of as family. You know, we, we've really become really close, um, and and I see myself as part of the movement. Um, which is why I do this work. So, you know, it's made it easy, it's complicated, it's um, fraught with contradictions, of course. Um, mm-hmm. But I hope that we are, I think that by, by looking at things squarely, um, and the film is part of my, my desire to do that, that I hope that we can um, find a way of, to unite all of our struggles, you know, because. One of the, 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 the ways that apartheid functioned in South Africa was, of course, to divide people by race. And that does happen here in this country today as well. And, you know, the idea in the film is, is that there is actually, you know, we are, we are more powerful when we can, can organize across those, those lines of division that we've seen, you know, told exist. Um, and that there is uh, there's a power in immunity across across racial divisions. So, I hope that answers mm-hmm. your question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And and certainly I'm gonna wanna have you back on again um when yeah, the film okay. is finished. And mm-hmm. and and one more thing, I wanted to ask if you could talk about uh uh is it is it um Tara Akbar? Tara Tara. Yes. Yeah. Oh Tyra, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. Tyra yes. yeah. the producer yes. She, yes. Yeah, yeah, we actually have a number of producers on the film, um, Tyra, and um, she's actually based in London at the moment, um, mm. you know, helped us get, get the film going. Many, many other people around the country, we, we actually have had local producers and field producers um, in many, many different states. And so, um, the yeah, the film is, is, is certainly a massive group work from so many different friends um, to to get this uh, to get this film made. <laughs> really mm-hmm. has taken the village. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I hear that. I didn't even know that. You know, you mm-hmm. went on that. That's awesome. London. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but then you think yeah. about poor people and this movement, and you think about Dr. Mm-hmm. King's 
uh, movement and message. It it was a global mm-hmm. uh, move because people yeah. are 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 mm-hmm. are suffering throughout the world. I mean, there are Absolutely. people that don't have adequate yeah. housing, health care. Mm-hmm. I mean, if people mm-hmm. had what they needed, then people wouldn't have to immigrate, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's not yeah. safe. Um, you know, it's just right. Mm-hmm. It's just so much. Um, a lot of violence. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so this particular work is going to resonate for people throughout. Yeah, you know, not just I in this so. country but elsewhere mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I really hope so. And of course, I I, I want to take the film back to South Africa, and I think, you know, I think it's going to be interesting for people to see this around the world because there is still that narrative, which is a really a sort of false myth, which which does prevail outside of this country, which is that there's no poverty in the United States. And that mm. there is a Are you serious? Movement. People think that still? Mm-hmm. People Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I thought We've got a good PR department, don't we? <laughs> yes, yes. And, you know, the, 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 the films and movies that we see overseas paint this picture of everyone has a really nice house. And, you know, mm-hmm. sort of, I grew up watching Beverly Hills 90210 on TV, because that's what we got. You know, mm-hmm. um, and that it's still, I do think that that narrative still prevails. And so I hope the film can play a role in, in expanding that to you. And, and also in showing the, the real heroes and heroines of this country, you know. So I think it's, it's not just about showing the conditions, it's also just showing the people across this country, including places like Flint. Michigan, you know, where people mm, have, yes. have had their, their water poison, they're part of the fight as well, you know. So it's mm-hmm. um, it's the Apache Nation, it's, uh, you know, the, the the Native Americans here as well who are joining the fight as well. So it's not just, you know, I'm really, um, really focusing on on the, the, the fight to, to, you know, to end these conditions, not just on, on the, you know, on the and suffering, but but on the other mm-hmm. front as well. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Well, excellent. Well, congratulations on you know on, you, on the work so far, and I'm really excited about seeing it tomorrow. And do you know Thank who's you. going to be on the panel? Who's going to be, you know, sort of moderating the conversation um, to get people? Entirely mm-hmm. sure. I'm not entirely sure. Okay. Um, yeah, there's been a real amazing team who's who's pulled together. Mm-hmm. The screening in San Francisco, so um, I um, it's going to be good. <laughs> oh yeah, I know it's going to be. I, I know Nell, my hand is going to be there because she introduced yeah. you. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. 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 Okay. Cool. Yeah. Well, people all can say is like, come on out. Um, you know, yeah. see sneak preview at um, mm-hmm. the the um, Stone Building. Is that what we what you said? Um, be? I'm, I'm doing it for me right now. Yes. No, okay. It's 6 p.m. tomorrow. January 23rd at the Red yeah, the Stone Building. Yeah, the Red Stone Building. That's 2640 16th Street. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, and that's right across from the bar somewhere because there's a bar that stops at 16th. Okay, great. So <laughs> I'm, sure it's, I'm sure it's easy for public transportation yeah. to get there. Okay, yeah. cool. Great. Super. Yeah, thank All you, right, Wanda. you take Thanks for care. having me on the show. Yes, oh, no care. problem. This is okay. just, just <laughs> the first conversation of many. Right, All right, Thank take you. care. Okay, you too. Bye bye. 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 <laughs> so we're gonna close with um. Hmm, I think we're gonna close with W. Kamal Bell talking about the playlist at Oakland uh, East Bay Oakland Symphony. 
And because this Friday is another playlist at the Oakland Symphony, and I have tickets, and I wasn't able to give away any of them. So, um, so anyway, if someone wants tickets, um, you know, go to the website and blog and give me your contact information um, so that I can um, give you a pair of tickets uh, for the um, um, for the Oakland Symphony's um, playlist this um, uh, this Friday at eight o'clock at the Paramount Theater is Bernard J. Tyson's playlist. Eight o'clock at the Paramount, twenty twenty-five Broadway, and you know, um, Mr. Tyson, you know, he died last year. However, this is going to be his playlist. Plus, uh, people are going to be honoring him. His wife is going to be there, sharing some of his his uh, writing, and so it's just going to be a wonderful, wonderful um, evening of music and celebration of his life. So, um, so if you want to be there and you want a pair of tickets. Um, you know, come online, go online if you're not already online, and let me know, and uh, so we can make this happen for you. So again, I am going to play W. Kamal Bell's uh, talking about uh, his playlist way back when. All right, you take care, enjoy, peace and blessings. Ah, yes, yeah, and one one big roller coaster morning. Wow, the the playlist. It sounds like a really phenomenal. Um, yeah, concept. Yeah, and and your playlist. Wow, it just looks so awesome. You know what you've chosen uh, as the playlist. Uh, you know uh, for this program at the uh, Oakland East Bay Symphony. So, you know when I first met you, you know you, um, you know, W. Kamal Bell, Bell's Curve, and you're having you know people bring along uh, a guest to your shows of another another race or culture, and they would get, I think, a half-off ticket or something. Yeah, people won. <laughs> right, yeah, and you did that, golly, I don't know how many years. Like, it was like, so. I, I mean, I started it 10, uh, 19, it was October 2007 was the first time I did it. So, you know, we've, uh, we've, come, we've come a little bit of a way since then. Yeah, well, a lot of ways since then. And then that wonderful series that you did, um, um, where, you know, you sort of took us into these alternative spaces and, you know, on your television show. And, 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 oh, yeah. it and was... we're working on season three of that right now. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. That was so awesome. I mean, you went to, I mean, you were talking to people that were white supremacists and, yep, you yep. know, you take us to the prisons and, yeah. and, you know, you just sort of like have those conversations that, the ordinary citizen would probably like to have, but don't have that kind of access, maybe, you know, or maybe yeah, they might yeah. Be, yeah, yeah, and then, you know, um, wow, all your podcasts, oh, my goodness, like, whoa, and then between that, you, you come out with, you know, this wonderful, the awkward thoughts, <laughs> uh, you know, tales of a six feet four inch African-American, heterosexual, cisgender, left-leaning, asthmatic, black and proud, Blurred, Mama's Boy, Dad, and Santa Comedian, you know, like, whoa, like, really? Yeah. <laughs> wow, man, and now the playlist, like, okay, like, you're not even that old, and you're just, like, creating such a legacy, like. Uh, well, I'm making up for lost time, I guess, you know, the first first part of my career, I didn't, I was, didn't accomplish that much, and, you know, didn't really <laughs> do that much, so, and now, also, I got, I got two kids, so, you know, I got to try to, try to uh, keep them fed and enclosed and indoors. 
Right. Yeah, that's important. That's definitely important. Yeah, so talk about, you know, what's going to be happening, you know, at Oakland Space Symphony, and, and what is the playlist? I mean, you know, you name all those other things. I had to do a lot of work to put those other things together. This, I didn't have to do that much work to do. It was really Michael <laughs> from the symphony said, would you like us to play some of your favorite songs? And I said, yes. And then I sent him a bunch of songs, and he picked <laughs> the ones that he thought would work best for the symphony. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I can't really tell you what's going to happen because I have not heard one note of it. I just get to show up like everybody else and enjoy it. And um, I will be there to host it. So I'll be on my seat will be on stage. So I'll have the best seat in the house. But uh, I will, <laughs> and I will sort of talk about why I picked the songs and and what they mean to me and what I think. And you know, and also I'll probably be just as amazed as everybody else by the results. Yeah, yeah, because uh, Jazz, Jazz Mafia is going to be uh, performing uh, that evening as well. Uh, was that your recommendation? No, like I said, Michael really, he has access to a lot, a lot of musicians, and a lot of people want to work with the Oakland Symphony. And so, I, you know, they as soon as I gave them the list of songs, I gave them some songs, and he said, you can send as many as you want. And I kept sending more and more, and at some point oh. he was like, that seems good. And then, you know, I just I didn't hear about it for months. <laughs> you know, and then, and then <laughs> eventually they put up a link with like some of the songs they were playing. I'm like, oh, look at that! And I'd forgotten about what I chose because it was had been many months before. Okay. And and then eventually it was like they added more songs, and I mean, I I, I sort of had forgotten. So I was just, it was exciting to discover the second time what they when I realized what they're going to play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So so tell us um. Tell us about some of those songs, the ones whose titles you remember, and oh, yeah. and and how how they became a part of sort of a playlist. A lot of times when people sort of resonate with certain songs, the artist is is articulating something that they feel really strongly about. Like, oh yeah, that's how mm-hmm. I felt exactly when that happened to me. You know. So I was wondering maybe you could sort of take us through a little a little biographical kind of walk through these these songs that ended up a part of your playlist because i'm sure you know philosophically all of us have a playlist you know they they mm-hmm. we have like this go-to we might not even know the name of the artist but like yeah i put that on when this happens or maybe you might not put it on but when you're listening to the radio late night and 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 there's like this jam happening it's like yeah i forgot this up but that's how i felt or maybe it takes you back to a time when you felt that and so it helps you remember something um, that you know maybe might be best forgotten or something that you really cherish and you're really happy to have an opportunity to relive it. So talk about your playlist and how these songs ended up there and sort of how they resonate with you. Uh, you know, I think it's they're, they're songs that have been important to me at various points in my life and mm-hmm. some songs that, you know, have stuck with me throughout my life. I mean, really they're, you know, when I started to send songs, first you send songs you're listening to now and then you send songs that, then I started thinking about songs that, that were important to me back in the day, and then I was like, well, what songs are key, are still with me that they just keep, like they haven't left since they first entered? And uh, and then also, at one point, I was at some point, I was also like, well, and what songs would I like a group of people who are hearing music to hear? You know, that, that just I think are important songs that, you know, that I, that I think the culture needs to hear, you know, and the people in that room need to hear. So, and then at one point I was like, oh, so what songs do I think my kids would like that they would associate with me that they would be because I'm going to bring my kids too. So, mm-hmm. you know, so there was a real – I just sort of like was, was able to pick from those different categories. And so, you know, like so like a, the song I picked that I know my kids would like is Three Little Birds by Bob Marley mm-hmm. that, you know, 
that I Bob Marley I started listening to Bob Marley in college. So when I had kids, I was like, I want to make sure my kids learn about Bob Marley way before they get to college. So you know, and and so whenever we play Bob Marley in the house, it's usually I'm the one who decides to play it, and they associate Bob Marley with me. So they, when I'm not around, they play Bob Marley music to remind them of me. And so I know that they will they will know that song, Three Little Birds, and it's also just a you know. In the middle of the political moment, when we feel like things aren't going to work out, and we don't know how we're going to get through the the, the Trumpification of America. Mm-hmm. You know, don't worry about a thing. Every little thing is going to be all right. <laughs> so, like, I think that uh, it's also a song that works for the, for the political moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then you also have, um, you know, Nina Simone's "Feeling Good" and Mississippi oh, yeah. Goddamn, and that yeah. those stories are simply awesome. Are are is any, are you gonna do any storytelling while the song like before like are you, are you gonna introduce them and talk about? Yeah, I'll be. Oh, super. Go ahead. Yeah, I'll be on stage and my I'm emceeing the evening, so oh. you know my my job is to intro each song and t- and they and Michael said you can talk as long or short as you want to. We just want you to be there and sort of mm. you know. So I will probably talk about my connection to each song and yes. you know Nina Simone is someone who I hadn't heard until I moved to Berkeley. Or wow. I moved to the Bay Area, not to Berkeley, but I moved to the Bay Area as a, as an adult. Like I hadn't, I just hadn't. Somehow I missed her, oh. and I was working at like a like a store in Berkeley, and you know one of the employees put on a CD, and you know suddenly I hear the name of the tune is Mississippi Goddamn, and I mean every word, and you go, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> and it's not, you know, the way Nina Simone sings, it's like. It's not how you. It's not you know. It's it's not a typical jazz song, and the way she the words she sang, and also I could tell from listening to it that it was recorded a long time ago. So then I knew it was dangerous when she, that she had to be singing that song, mm-hmm. you know. And and at first Nina Simone might hit you and you go like, I don't know what this is, but you know, then she gets into your soul and into your spine, and you go, Oh, this is what I need. <laughs> so you know, and I love the thing I love about Nina Simone is that she can do Mississippi Goddamn. Which is a which is a screed and a polemic and a fiery, uh, angry song, but also it's kind of bouncy and you can dance to it, like, you know, it's just mm-hmm. a, which is one of the uh, classic tenets of black music. And then you go from that, which is a pretty uh, intense song, to like feeling good, which is, you know, which while it's about feeling good, there's melancholy in there. And if you know anything about Nina Simone, you know that she has some melancholy in her life and has mm-hmm. some. And challenges, but I also feel like that aligns very well with black people and the struggle of oppressed people in this country. Even when we're feeling good, we're still carrying the weight of history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly, certainly, yeah. And then, uh, and then you've got you know James Weldon Johnson, lift every voice, you know. Oh yeah, things. you gotta have that. Gotta yeah. Have that. So yeah. are you gonna tell the audience to stand up? You know what? That's the first song of the night. I think oh, that probably okay. that'll be, you know, I, I would imagine <laughs> that, you know, if you were, we're in Oakland, I would imagine people will probably, the, that many people always will stand up just because that's what you're supposed to do. So, you know, but that's, uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, but that's, that's the song that's going to start the whole evening. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's our, that's our national anthem, as you know. Yeah, uh, so, right. yeah, we, yeah. Should, we should, of course, yeah. stand up and respect mm-hmm. it. There won't be any kneeling on that one. <laughs> Yeah, and you know the mix is really cool. Like you got, you know, some, some, you know, some, you know, some stuff. You know, we call it uh, what, uh, African, um, American, um, you know, a folk or classic. You know, they used to call them Negro spirituals. But another friend of mine calls it something else. But you know, thinking about you know Moses Hogan. I mean, like, whoa, like you know. That's really awesome, you know, that, that you know Moses Hogan, you know, and a lot of people don't know him. So this is going to be a real education in sort of 
the uh, uh, sort of um, sort of like uh, uh, I guess uh, music 101 if you want to know about black culture like this well, is this yeah for me it's like about like you know you can think about when you think about I know when I first when I first start to think about songs that I like you start mm-hmm. to think of, you think about pop music or music that is on the radio mm-hmm. and at some point I realized well, a lot of my early life, especially, was spent going to church. And some of those songs, mm-hmm. I still, even though I don't hear anybody singing them that often anymore because I don't go to church like as much as I used to, and I, I know I need to get back. But, uh, you know, Swing Low Sweet Chariot is always available to me. Like, it's always, <laughs> it is something I, that's always sort of humming through my head. I, I sing it on stage occasionally when I, want to, when I want to take the audience to a very black and a very classically, you know, American black place. I'll sing a few bars of Swing Low Sweet Chariot, and mm-hmm. and the black people go, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> and so for me, it's just like one of those songs. It's like, again, thinking bigger than just when you think of what are your favorite songs. A lot of us would think about pop music, and I just really it was important to me to take advantage of the symphony and their ability to play different types of music. And Michael was very uh, encouraging of that. Like he said, think of songs that you think a symphony could really do well, and so. Mm-hmm. Uh, gospel and symphony go well together. Yeah, but then, you know, the thing about Moses Hogan, I mean, there have been a lot of versions of Swing Low Sweet Chariot, but when you get Moses Hogan, I mean, he's like classic, you know, Negro yeah. spirituals, you know, that yeah. particular heritage. I mean, you know, so like, yeah, just like, you know, Nina Simone, I mean, he is, and he, you know, he died so young um, mm-hmm, after, mm-hmm. you know, and he, he came here. Did you get a chance to meet him when he was, you know, doing, the you know, the various, uh, he traveled here a lot and did, did choral concerts. Did you get a chance I did to not, meet I him? Did, I did, I unfortunately did not get a chance to meet him, but certainly, mm-hmm. you know, that version of it is, is, is stuck inside of me. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah, certainly, certainly. And then you've got Jimi Hendrix and... Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it's just like, wow. And then you've got some folks, you know, that are more from the, you know, the classic classical realm, um, and you could pronounce their names for me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, where did I have that? You have Todd. Uh, um, Todd, oh, well, Todd Rundgren is a... He's actually a like a white rock musician. Who, oh, okay. You know, I love my life. Comes, yeah. yeah, yeah, and then so, it, but it's a very, it's a so normally he plays very sort of you know sort of classic rock white rock music, but this song was his version of a of a gospel song, and so mm-hmm. he's got a gospel choir in it. So nice. it's a very up tempo song that like will get people moving. So I mean, I think that's why. I, and I don't know that Michael had ever heard that song, but I think that's why it's the second song of the show because it's a very, you know, we're going to go to some, some of these songs take us to some dark corners, but this song is a very, like, up-tempo, we're all happy to be in the room together. I would imagine that some people will just let their, will we'll start dancing and moving around. <laughs> you know? So I think that, like, it's a song that will get the movie, to get, the, to get everything started. Mm-hmm. And then we have, you know, Flight of the Bumblebee and uh, yeah. and the Saber Dance, which are mm-hmm. classical, classic, mm-hmm. are classical, not classic songs, classical music songs. Yeah. Which, because Michael's like, is there any classical songs that you, that you, that you think of or songs <laughs> you like? And, uh-huh. it, and, you know, the funny thing about the Saber Dance, mm-hmm. it's, just, it, it's a song that I, as a parent, I think about a lot because it's a very, like, it's it's uh people have heard it on the Ed Sullivan show. It's like and as a parent running around in the morning trying to get the kids ready for school and get the breakfast done and and get people's shoes and socks on. I think about that song a lot. You know, trying to like I got to get this done so quickly. So you know, again, it was songs that like. I may never listen to, I don't like, I don't like pull up to listen to on, you know, when I'm listening to music, but they are songs that I've heard at various points and have stayed with me. Mm-hmm. 
Right, yeah. And then you think also about, you know, a saber, you know, that's that's a, a sword, right? Mm-hmm, and and that's, mm-hmm. you know, got that's got choreography, you know, when you see the sword dances, sword fights in, you know, like Hamlet and other other, you know, sort of, you know, theater. And it just mm-hmm. sort of you think about the sword in a lot of cultures, you know, even African culture as, you know, Japanese culture as uh as as a sort of a, a fight of honor. You know, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and 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 you know, and it's not something that you take lightly. You know, you 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 um you challenge a person. You know, you don't just kill them. <laughs> you know, like yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. like I would like I would like I have to defend my honor, and I want to invite you to this. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's just sort of like, um, and you could refuse, and you might get killed mm-hmm. anyway. But <laughs> the person gives mm-hmm. you an opportunity. So you know, sort of the choreography around, um you know, this particular type of of um, combat and, and, and the resolution of conflict. And, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, sort of restorative justice and and it's sort of another way to think about it. And I don't know if they're going to think all this stuff when they're listening to the song, but I just thought about that when I'm sort of thinking about the title of it. And I don't know the history of the song, but, uh, yeah. Uh, oh, that's really super. And, and then... Um, and then you've got sowing the seeds of love, and that's uh, tears for fears. I don't know them. Uh, tears for fears. They were a band from the '80s. You've oh. probably heard their music. They were a big band, uh, big like uh, from England, uh, from England, but they okay. were a big band in the '80s. Uh-huh. Uh, sort of very Beatles inspired, and that was one of their big hits in the in their late '80s, early '90s, called "Sowing the Seeds of Love." Uh-huh. It's a very Beatles inspired, again, sing along song, uh-huh. and a song that is like again, I think. Some of the songs here are directly about confronting the political moment, and some mm-hmm. of the songs here are about rising above the political moment. So, okay. you know, sowing the seeds of love is about about how we have to. For me, it's like, and it's a song I like when a lot of people think that my that my work is divisive or that I'm divisive, and I think of that song as like, no, I'm just sowing the seeds of love. Like, it's just sometimes you gotta dig up the earth and and till the land to really get to the love to get mm-hmm. to get the earth to grow. Right. Yeah, yeah, so true, so true. Um, and I was just thinking, um, because of the type of physical space you occupy, um, you know, as, as a person, as a black man, um, you can you can you can sow the seeds of love, you know, in a way that others that maybe don't have your stature and now, you know, your your um your influence, you know, in in mm-hmm. in a in a large sense, you know, around media and around recognition, you know that. I mean, you know, it also happens. You know, you think about some things that happen to folks that are well known, you know, like you know, Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr. getting jammed up when he was mm-hmm. going into his house. Like, really? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah. Um, but but he's not he's not six four either. <laughs> so you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, I just sort of think about that. And do you think about that yourself? It's like, wow, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm blessed to be able to to have the mic and be able to further the discussion in a way that others who would like a similar kind of discourse are not allowed. And so, sort of how do you feel about that? And what does that? How does that shape what you do and how you move into the different uh, sort of activities you move into like now you know you've got a part of a symphony like whoa really <laughs> i mean you know i just it's you know from the from the moment that i started doing the bell curve where i was just like i just this you know i'm a stand-up comedian that's not i'm not i'm not succeeding there the way i want to let me do some work that i just want to do and let the mm. chips fall where they may and okay. the, from the moment i made that decision 
my career started to change pretty quickly. Like mm. it wasn't like I immediately got a TV show, but like the work was better, the people I met was better, the like the, my my skills got better very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so for me, this doing this thing with the Open Symphony is again just let me just do the kind of work that I want to do. Let me do that work with integrity. Mm-hmm. Let me do that work in a way that I think uplifts people who need uplifting. Uh, and let me do work that I actually enjoy, and that and let the chips fall where they may. And so that's. You know, that's how I got to the Oakland Symphony. I didn't pursue them. I wasn't like, I need you guys to play my favorite songs. <laughs> you know, that never would have worked. Mm-hmm. But I think, thankfully, the example that I put out in the world that some that uh, Michael and the people at the symphony saw, and, th- and they want to try to push what they do to a different place. And that's what I think when art is at the best is when it's crossing boundaries and genres. Mm-hmm. And so, luckily, they wanted to invite me in. And I believe if this goes well, they want to do more nights like this where they invite people in to do their playlist. Mm-hmm. And I feel honored that I'm the first person that they thought to that they. I don't know if I'm the first person they asked, but I'm the first person they asked to agree to do it. So I appreciate that. <laughs> right, yeah, and that's one one thing I really love about about um, you know Maestro um, Michael um, Morgan. Um, you know, since he arrived here, you know, um, you know after the tragic um, death of Calvin Simmons, you know the you know where he drowned, he's just been like just so plugged into community and, and just sort of getting the arts into the public schools and collaborating with organizations, you know, that do, you know, music in the schools and, um, you know, all types of genres, you know, not just classical. And, and you know, and, and the Oakland Symphony, you know, and then we, we have the Oakland Ballet. And mm-hmm. and just sort of the kind of programming that has happened at the Oakland um, East Bay Symphony since Michael Morgan has been um, been with us um, is just like, wow, you know. I mean, from having um, DJ Spooky, you know, um, doing the um, – uh, the Birth of a Nation uh, remixed, you know. So we got a hip hop artist doing turntable at a symphony. Like, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, wow, this is so cool. So, you know, it's like really, really, really great. And I'm thinking, you know, how when you go to the Paramount for um, the more pop concerts, people are dancing in the, in their seats. I'm wondering yeah. if it's gonna be like sort of a crossover kind of thing like that, where people are gonna jump up and just like, I can't sit down for this one. This is my song. No, you know? I mean, I, you know, my. <laughs> My three-year-old will most likely not be sitting down, so I'd say just follow the follow my three-year-old and 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 do what you feel like doing. And Michael said that's true is that he won't. You know, these are a lot of these songs in are are like inviting you to dance and sort of also demanding you get up and move. And if you so or or whether you can get up and move or just move your body in your seat, they mm-hmm. they sort of want you to feel them. So right. certainly we hope that happens. Yeah, and I'm sure you're going to give us permission from the stage too for those of us. Who, of course. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> And then, you know, you've got the anthem, you know, John Cole trains the Love Supreme, like, okay, so Yeah, no, I mean, you know, I sent I don't I sent them a bunch of songs and I was there was one that I hope they picked and Love Supreme was certainly, I mean, you know, as John Coltrane, mm-hmm. as the older I get, the more time I spend listening to John Coltrane. So for me, it's like, you know, he's somebody who not only is a great jazz musician, but as an artist, he's an, it's an example I follow. Like, keep pursuing your path. Don't, mm-hmm. you know, and if other people think what you're doing is weird, just to shut them out and keep doing what you think is, what you think is, is great. So, you know, so that's, mm-hmm. I'm really happy to, you know, and that's a, you know, a, again, a classic Coltrane Love Supreme is one of the greatest jazz albums of all time and one of the greatest artworks in the, that's ever been in the history of the world. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. pieces of art. So mm-hmm. I'm happy to, for them to simply be able to play, that, to play a piece of it. Right, yeah. And are you going to talk about, you know, sort of the, the writing, um, 
you know, the words? Are you going to share those with the audience before the symphony starts? You know what, I... I I don't know what, like, really, I'm trying to stay out of the music and let the music people handle that. <laughs> so, like, it's really up to, and maybe once we get there, we'll talk about some things. But mm-hmm. I, I I sort of feel like I'm going as the most honored audience member. Like, I get to sit on stage and I get to talk to the audience and tell them what's going on. But mm-hmm. uh, I really want to m- make sure that, like, that my job is to talk for a few minutes and then get out of the way. Yeah. No, no, I mean, when you talk for a few minutes about a Love Supreme, where you're going to talk about, you know, that, you know that Coltrane oh, sure, had, sure. yeah, 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 that the, yeah, that the words he played, that he, uh, that he, yes, he sang over, he sort of played through his trumpet, yes, mm-hmm. yeah, and yeah. Also, yeah, and, and then he talked about how love supreme, you know, is, uh, is, is about God and and about love and how love is the highest power, and then it's so cool that you know this wonderful concert, you know, is happening on January nineteenth, um, you know, eight o'clock at the Paramount Theater in Oakland, um, and. Um, it's it's during Martin Luther King Jr. week, you know. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, uh, and so it's perfect. Yeah, it's also right before my birthday, so this is. Oh, is your birthday uh, January twentieth or? No, no, no. It's the the twenty sixth. Really? Oh, wow, wow, wow! So you're right after um, <laughs> when we have you know new presidents um, that they 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 get inaugurated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, that's the thing. It's also. As Michael pointed out, it's the night before the one-year anniversary, the inauguration of, of, uh, of as, as Angela Rice says, your president. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! Well, happy birthday in advance. So you're, uh, yeah. So you're uh, an Aquarius. Aquarians yeah. are really cool folks. My brother's an Aquarius, and my granddaughter is. Nice, nice. So um, wow. So the special guests besides the Jazz Mafia are Maria uh Maria uh Dickinson, uh Elephantine, T Sisters and the Oakland Symphony Chamber Chorus, you know, all, you know, backed by mm-hmm. the Oakland Symphony Orchestra with conductor Michael Maestro Michael Morgan. Uh, this is going to be like one for the the memories, and people need to be in the house because it's never going to be quite like this because this is your place. No, yeah, and, it's every, and, you know, this is one of those things, it's a live event. There's not going to be a, a recording of it. There's mm-hmm. not going to be a, they're not broadcasting it on the radio. This is a live event. So if you're yeah. there, you'll know what happened. If you're not mm-hmm. there, you just have to hear about it. Right, yeah. Wow, it's going to be really, really super. And so for people that want to keep up with you, um, do you have anything New, getting ready to break loose. I know you said you're working on a new season um, for um, for the uh, the United, United Shades, Shades of United America. Shades of America. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, on uh, CNN. Um, so well, I went to- yeah, I mean that, that, and I also uh, you know I will be um, start. I am uh, doing some stand up again, but oh. I think I think I, yeah uh, on the 29th and 30th I'll be other. Uh, 29th and 30th, I'll be at the punchline, but I think those are sold out. But I'm also, I'm, you know, I'm about to record a comedy special on February 1st, and so that'll come out at some point, too. So just keep your eyes open for that. <laughs> okay. All righty, super. Well, thank you. Thank you so much uh, for joining us to talk about, you know, this um, wonderful um, Oakland Symphony Presents W. Kamal Bell's playlist uh, on Friday, January 19th, and that's not sold out, but the Oakland Symphony uh, concerts do sell out because they sold out on the Let Us Break Red, and Michael was like, well, you know, we're sold out. 
yeah, yeah, no, this is apparently the tickets are moving quickly, so it, okay. it, it looks like it's gonna sell out. So. Oh, that's if you're, if you're thinking about it, get your tickets soon. That's totally true. Yeah, alrighty. Um, so if you want to get tickets, they need to. They can call. Uh, 510-444-0802 or then go online to oaklandsymphony.org and look at the events and you can get tickets there. And tickets are 25 to $90. And, um, yeah, but they're going quickly, so you need to make sure that you get your ticket because you don't want to say, oh, man, I really wanted to no. go. And you'll be standing you out there and say, do you have an extra ticket? You know, <laughs> no, 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 you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. <laughs> no, you don't want to do that. <laughs> All righty. We take good care. Look forward to seeing you on stage introducing these different songs and giving us a little history and giving us permission to, like, be in the moment and really enjoy ourselves. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Yeah, and I look forward. Gosh, you sold out on the 29th and 30th. Well, let me see if something I can have something can happen. I haven't seen you uh, do your uh, comedic comedic work in a long time. That would well, be really I fun. Think, I think I think we can get you on the list. I think you know somebody. Okay. All right. Super. I'll tell them <laughs> that too. All right. You take yeah. care. Come out. All right. You too. Bye. All right Bye. Peace. Bless. Bye. Bye. 